1: I love traveling, and today for Spirit in Action, we're going to do
2: a major hop, almost halfway around the globe, to the United Arab
1: Emirates in the city of Abu Dhabi to visit with John O'Brien, author of a new book, Keeping It Halal, The Everyday Lives of Muslim American Teenage
2: Boys. John is Assistant Professor of Sociology at New York University, Abu Dhabi, and though he mostly grew up Catholic, he converted to Islam as an adult. The tensions of being part of a religious minority, especially one that is feared by far too many non-Muslims in the U.S., and to be an American teenager can be a real challenge, as we'll discuss further as John O'Brien joins us via Skype in Abu Dhabi. John, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Mark.
2: You know, you're the first person over in Abu Dhabi that I've interviewed. How long have you been over there?
3: I've lived here five years now.
2: I'm pretty impressed moving to Abu Dhabi. Does that at all limit your ability to get the word out about keeping it halal? Or I mean, it seems like it would be nice if you could do a tour of all the cities, and it's a long flight from Abu Dhabi.
3: Yeah, it would be nice. I think I'm definitely going to do some of that in the spring. So the book just came out, and I've already been able to do some radio and different press. So it's not not hampering me too much. But I think I'll be back in the States for the spring for a couple city visits like that.
2: Let's talk about keeping it halal, the everyday lives of Muslim American teenage boys. Since you, John, grew up as a Catholic, which I also did, by the way, before we talk about what it's like to be Muslim growing up, were there challenges that you had being a Catholic, trying to be a good Catholic, I'm assuming, and trying to be an American?
3: I don't remember so many challenges in that way, I think in part because my parents weren't particularly practicing Catholics. I mean, we did go to church regularly, but it wasn't a particularly major part of my upbringing. But I think for us, the challenge was more finding a church that they felt sort of suited them and and was aligned with their own kind of political and social beliefs. So we would sort of change churches a lot, looking for that one right church that, that we felt good about. And I don't think they ever really found that.
2: One of the things you mention in the book right away is you grew up Catholic, attended Catholic Church, you went to Quaker school, and I happened to have become a Quaker along the way. That evidently didn't work for your parents, or did they try that out too?
3: No, they didn't try that out. I sort of was drawn to it. That was almost a coincidence that the school I went to was a Quaker school. But I really appreciated that about it. And we would have meeting for worship, and I actually really liked that a lot. That was something that I sort of became familiar with. Never really considered it an option to, to be Quaker, but I definitely got a lot out of that tradition.
2: But you were always drawn, as you say in the book, to this spiritual dimension. And somewhere that dovetails with your work, where you eventually become an assistant professor of sociology, where did those two come together
3: Yeah. So basically, I think I was always kind of on this path of trying to find some kind of articulation of a sense of spirituality and and religion. And then I, I met my wife in college. We attended the same college. And I learned about Islam from her, and I was very impressed with her and also with what I learned about the religion. And so I then did convert after graduating from college, but before grad school was even in my mind. I worked for a nonprofit and sort of youth programs for a long time after um, college and before I went to grad school. So I was a Muslim long before I became a sociologist, actually, before I converted to sociology, (laughs) as it were.
2: When you say that you worked with youth programs as well as nonprofits, does this presage in some way your work with the legends who we can talk about in the book, keeping it a
3: Yeah, I think it did. I, I was always drawn to working with young people as sort of the after school programs and even sort of youth activism programs and things like that. And it wasn't really necessarily with Muslim young people. It was all, all different types of young people in different cities that I lived in. But I think that did sort of set me up well to connect with the young people in the book who I got to know by starting to volunteer at this mosque. The
2: title of the book again, John, is Keeping It Halal, the Everyday Lives of Muslim American Teenage Boys. Some of us, I'm 63, are old enough that our teenage years are very much in the rear view mirror. I think that people read this book. What they're going to see is it's like growing up anything. I mean, I grew up Catholic, went to high school, and I was going to CYO every week as well. And so, you know, trying to juggle these identities is what everybody does. There's an extra layer in the people that you're talking about, John. That is, most of them are at most uh, second-generation Americans. That is, their parents came from another country to the U.S., and so they're also juggling, I think, ethnic identities as well as religious, as well as just you know their home identities. How big a part did that ethnic origins play in how they were doing their search for their culturally contested lives?
3: I think it did play a role. I think it didn't play a role in the sense that they didn't necessarily feel that different from one another based on ethnicity. I mean, they obviously knew. So it was a really a group of about five friends that I spent a lot of time with. Two of them were brothers from an East African country. Two of them were brothers from an Arab country and one from South Asia. And so they their backgrounds were different, their ethnic backgrounds. They definitely bonded over being Muslim and going to this mosque youth program together. But I think you're right that the immigration factor and the sort of being of a minority ethnicity in the country did sort of set them apart on top of their religious. So and there's, you know, there are many people who are starting to consider almost Islam as a It's almost being racialized in a sense. So it almost feels like a different kind of uh, racial or ethnic identity itself in the way it's treated because people set it aside as so different than mainstream American identity. So I think they definitely felt kind of set apart in that way.
2: One of the things you say right at the very beginning, John, about how you met the legends, as you call them, this group of five young men, is that you bonded over music and hip hop, rap music was big for you back, I guess, maybe in the 90s and for them moving towards 2010. I tend to think that there is a very strong identity within whichever musical group you have. I have a son who's 30. He identifies his primary friends as those who like the specific slice of music that he likes the most. How strong was that a part of this book?
3: That was very strong. I think... For the young people, sort of bonding with one another, and also for me bonding with them, that was very important. And a lot of people asked me, you know, why? How did I, I think I connected with the young people so well? And people say, oh, it must be because, you know, because you're a Muslim. And I would say, well, that sort of got me in the door. But, you know, lots of people of the same religion hang out in the same congregation and don't get along. That's obviously not enough. So you look for these other things that people connect through. And something else that I've studied a lot in my own academic work and just by being a human being is that music obviously connects people on such a deep level. And I also say in the book how they even said that to me, that this to them was a moment when they knew we were sort of getting close when I said to them, oh, I used to play in a band and I shared some of my music with them. And so I think there is something about music that can really bring people together, especially when they're young.
2: I'm kind of wondering if there's a way that we could edge into the kind of music and how they did their culturally contested identities. If you could identify a song that you really liked a lot back, I guess, in the 90s, that, you know, over 10 years later, when you're being a youth leader with this Muslim group, Muslim teenagers, that would not have been halal for that group Can you think of one that was like, really, it's like, oh, this is me. And then it's like, "Uh uh-oh, this better not be me.
3: Right. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. It's funny because in some ways I think I was a little bit nerdier than them in the sense that when I think of the songs I liked, it wasn't particularly inappropriate. (laughs) It was almost more like sort of the political aspect of it. And I think what was interesting is, the music that they liked also sort of, and this is interesting about hip hop, is it can really combine these kind of political, you know, storylines with, of course, romantic or sexual or, you know, describing drug and alcohol and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, I think for my own sort of hip hop fandom, it wasn't anything particularly inappropriate. And so maybe that was part of why it worked out that we could click in that way, because I don't think I had. I think they were much more in touch with sort of more recent and a little bit more edgy uh, music than I was. One
2: of the most valuable things that I understood when I was reading your book was how this Muslim identity, particularly as a second generation, where both the religious group identity and the cultural identity were so central and so in opposition to American individualism. I guess the way I would say it is that in America, we're all supposed to be our best selves, whereas perhaps if you're from Togo or if you're Muslim or have one of those identities, it's most important to be that identity. Could you talk about that tension and how you saw it played out with the legends, with this group of young people that you were working with?
3: Yeah, and it's important to say, as you sort of hinted at, that you know, Muslims in different places, even if they share the same religious identity, you know, live out their religion in different ways and sort of what that means culturally to them can really vary. But in this case, it it was a tension that I noticed between things like communal responsibilities or religious obligations one thing that muslims have like many religions have but the the content of them may be different in islam is certain things that you're expected to do as a muslim to pray five times a day to attend the mosque on fridays especially if you're a man to fast during ramadan And to sort of, you know, be around other Muslim people and do these things together. Now, that can pull against, I think, this idea of American individualism, which especially if you're a young person, the expectation is that you should be able to sort of do what you want when you want to do it, be with your friends, do something fun. And so for them, it was sometimes tough where at the very moment they wanted to go to something fun. Oh, it's time to pray and there's a lot of pressure that they're supposed to do that at that exact same moment. So how do you resolve that and how do you feel like both a an appropriately American teenager and a good Muslim?
2: You talk about one event that happened. The kids were at the mosque and it was time for a prayer. They were kind of stretching when it was gonna happen, who was gonna do it, when you know, they they were pushing the envelope talk about how that led you to insights about this culturally contested identity.
3: Yeah, so I think they would sort of find ways and not necessarily consciously. I mean, one thing that in ethnography we we notice about people is that they sort of come up with these strategies for dealing with dilemmas of everyday life without really even talking about it. There's something that you develop over time informally with people around you. And so I noticed they would often sort of wait to to pray until uh, the very last minute. Um, sort of together, sort of lackadaisically playing, throwing a ball to each other, chatting, going outside. And then finally, at the very last minute, they would make it and say the prayers that they were supposed to pray, and then go on with their day. And so to me, it really made me realize that this was sort of a way that many teenagers, you know, like to eventually get to what you want them to do, but not right away. I think it was a way that they could show each other, okay, you know, we're going to do the right thing, but we're going to do it in our own way in our own time. And so I think that was sort of solved a little problem for them.
2: At what age do Muslim males, are they expected to do the prayer five times a day? I mean, I've got Jewish friends, for instance, and it's really as of the time that you are a bar or a bat mitzvah that you're expected to be part of the prayer, right? That you can be part of a minyan in Jewish practice. Is there an Coming of age, identify as an adult or as an active member of the Islamic group for boys?
3: Good question. There's not really a sort of ceremony or ritual like that. And in terms of prayer, young people are learning how to pray even from a very young age. They're seeing their parents pray and they're sort of around at the mosque. And so I think people would start learn to pray from being maybe even like age four or, or five. But in terms of praying five times a day, I think it's often would be older, maybe about nine or 10 or something like that. But it also depends on the family. And the same thing goes for sort of fasting during Ramadan. Usually young kids aren't expected to do that. But the older you get, what happens a lot is, you know, a kid might try it out for maybe a few hours a day, you know, try to fast for part of the day and see how that goes. And then maybe eventually by about high school age, they would be uh, fasting during Ramadan. And actually the kids at the mosque did that as well. That was one way that it became clear to people at their schools that they were Muslim is when they would be fasting, and they would be explaining to their friends or, or people at school kind of what they were doing.
2: What about the praying five times a day? I think that would be kind of glaring. How is that accommodated in the school system in the U.S.?
3: Yeah, so it really varies and in fact we're seeing right now things change in some US school districts around Muslims particularly if with Muslim holidays. So some I think it would New York school district is now has some Muslim holidays off. And in terms of prayer, I know that some schools would actually have actually kids would tell me stories about they would have a teacher or a coach who would say, "Oh, you can, you know, come and use this room if you want to pray." Other schools have a more formal setup if they have enough students. But I think that you would have to also accommodate for, you know, praying later. You wouldn't want to, you know, leave during class or things like that. So there are also accommodations for, you know, you can pray a little bit later in the day if that's more, you know, you're able to do that later.
2: I guess our listeners may be wondering what the word halal means because not everyone in the U.S. knows what halal or haram is. Could you explain those concepts in Muslim practice?
3: yeah halal basically means something that's permissible according to the sort of rules of the quran of the islamic faith and of course those rules can be variously interpreted which is another thing that's important to know about muslims like any other religion there can be a variety of interpretations of what the quran actually says about this or what the um what is called the hadith which are the stories of the life of the prophet muhammad what they really mean so people argue about these things a lot but the term halal means permissible and term haram means forbidden something you should shouldn't do according to these same guidelines. And people, I think, have heard halal probably a lot in regards to food, because it's a word that's used to mean if a food, very parallel to kosher in Jewish tradition, if a food is blessed and prepared the right way, it's halal. And just like with kosher, not all Muslims eat halal, but some Muslims try to do that. But it's also a word used much more broadly to mean kind of things that are permissible within the religion.
2: And why don't you outline a few of the things that American teenagers would be exposed to that might be fine in American culture but are haram from a Muslim point of view?
3: So the things that really came up, and of course, again, this depends on the community you're in and the mosque you're in. I mean, in a lot of ways, the mosque I was at uh, is considered pretty liberal compared to some other mosques. Sort of it's all relative. But for this group of kids, the focus was really on some issues of music, listening to music, particularly music that had bad language in it or references to drugs and alcohol or um, premarital sex. So that was – and those those two issues are also off the table for a good Muslim, which is drinking, and also premarital intimacy with any kind of physical aspect to it. So there was an idea that you could have some kind of friendship with someone of the opposite gender – which might end up in marriage eventually. But the idea of actually dating was definitely kind of frowned upon. Through what age? Really through until you're married, basically. So the idea is that you would somehow meet, um, be introduced to someone, maybe through your family and get to know them and then eventually get married to that person. I mean, this is kind of the ideal, how this is talked about. But of course, in reality, it is hard to do this. And a lot of this also reflects some of the places people's families were, were coming from, where they would have almost something close to arranged marriages. So marriage was something that was done much more as part of the community, as families that knew one another, and you might sort of meet someone that way. So some of this is also adjustment to sort of traditions from Uh, a home country versus sort of a more American way of of meeting people and getting married.
2: We're going to get into more of the core of the discussion about keeping it halal with John O'Brien in just a moment. But first, I want to remind you, you're listening to Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web northernspiritradio.org all of our programs are available there for free listening and download place for comments links to our guests and when you want to track down john o'brien and you'd go to john that's one of the places you'll find out about him he is assistant professor of sociology at new york university in abu dhabi where he's joining us from for today's spirit in action program I do want to mention also when you visit our site, please do post a comment, make our communication two way. There's also a possibility of clicking the donate button. This program is supported by your donations, not by corporations, not by government. It's because you want to make it continue. Before supporting Northern Spirit Radio, support your local community radio station. Having diverse local forms of media are so absolutely essential. So please start there. John O'Brien's with us, Keeping It Halal, The Everyday Lives of Muslim American Teenage Boys. And you were just talking, John, about some of the ways prescribed and accepted the halal and haram behavior of the teens. And in some ways, this doesn't sound terribly different than perhaps what is expected of evangelical Christians or maybe Jewish individuals. I mean, there's there are certain laws and rules and such that are part of any of these religious identities. Does it seem to you that the demands are significantly higher for Muslims?
3: No, I don't think so. I mean, and one thing that I really found through doing the research and then reading a lot of other great books about the kind of communities you just talked about, not just religious communities, but also sort of immigrant communities in the U.S., is that there's often a very similar set of expectations by parents and, and by communities on young people's behavior. And so I don't think it's necessarily more strict or, or more demanding. It was nice to actually sort of read these other cases and see that, you know, this is really similar to other communities.
2: And we are talking about teenagers here. And one of the things that happens when you go through middle school and high school, very frequently people will coalesce into certain groups, identities, at least part of their identity is maybe as a jock or as part of the music group, right? The band group or the burnouts or goths or preppies or whatever the identity is. What is pretty universal is that in some way they want to be accepted and maybe they'd even like to be cool. That's a pretty high goal for some of us. I don't know. Were you cool in high school?
3: (laughs) I definitely wasn't sort of mainstream cool. I may have been some kind of third tier version, but (laughs) I was definitely not like in the popular crowd. But I definitely, it just made me think back on my high school days, sort of different cliques and different groups and I think it it made me really remember and how you know a lot of times when you're trying to figure out how to be a teenager and what group you want to be part of one way people solve that is sort of finding other people who are in the similar position that they're in, sort of maybe between groups and trying to figure out what part of this kind of music they like and what part of this kind of style they want to have and if they want to be part of the really smart group or the really sporty group or whatever it is. And I think these kids had a lot of the same dynamics in that they were friends and part of their friendship was really about trying to figure out how to, be, how to balance these various ways of being and try to figure that out together
2: one of the things that united them, they, I guess the legends were kind of rock, hip-hop. They did music together. In some Muslim circles, basically all music is haram, is not permissible, is outside of the good laws of behavior, I guess you'd say. I interviewed someone for Song of the Soul program that we do for Northern Spirit Radio. His name is Dawood Warnsby. And He was talking about being at a mosque down in Colorado, and basically the sermon was about how all music was haram. It was not acceptable. You said this was a fairly liberal mosque that these young men were associating with. Is rap, hip-hop really pushing the boundaries for them, or all music? How close is that? How big a deal is that?
3: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't that big a deal at this mosque. So from the start, as you said, there are some people who interpret the hadith of the the life of the prophet to say that, All music is haram because it's, you know, it's very similar to things you hear in different conservative religions. It's it leads to temptation. It leads people to, you know, sinful behavior. But the leaders of the mosque and especially of the youth program definitely had a different interpretation of that. And they would actually talk to the kids about this very openly and say, well, we don't we don't agree with that. You know, we think music is, is fine. But I do think hip hop music was pushing it a little bit. And particularly because, as I said before, the content of hip hop can often include you know, bad language, references to drugs and alcohol, talking about sex and violence. So I think there was some kinds of hip hop that were definitely frowned upon. But I think in general the mosque was open to to hearing at least what kind of music the kids listened to and trying to understand kind of where they were coming from.
2: I also did an interview within the past year with a man named Irfan Ali Taj, who's from Chitral region of Pakistan. He was talking about how certain music is acceptable, not acceptable. In particular, I was asking him about dancing because I'm an international folk dancer. I do dances from all over the world. I actually ran into something when I went to Kenya the first time with this Quaker folk dance group called the Friendly Folk Dancers, There was a question whether they'd accept us because they were this evangelical Christian variety that looked at dancing as very suspect, and yet they had never questioned the fact that their indigenous form of dance was okay. Is this true also in most Islamic countries that their local music, their tribe, their ethnic group, that their music is okay, but when they refer to music, they're actually referring to, what, Western music or something?
3: Yeah, it's funny, you know, because I was just – I literally just came from a celebration – the Abu Dhabi is in a country called the United Arab Emirates, and it's actually the week of the National Day celebration here. It's the 46th year of this country, and I just literally, <laughs> about half an hour ago, came from a celebration where people were dancing here, and it is a traditional, <laughs> yeah, traditional dance. I wish I could send you a video of it. It's very interesting. But I think that's true that some of the same people might frown upon some kind of Western dance or some kind of more overtly sexualized dance, And I think that's maybe part of it. But, you know, the kids would kind of see this hypocrisy. In fact, I remember hearing debates where these kids would say, you know, well, my mom or dad says we can't dance, but then when we go to Egypt for a family wedding, people are doing belly dancing, you know? So why, you know, (laughs) why is, why is that different? So they would try to kind of also see these kind of uh, contradictions.
2: Teenagers are hypocrisy microscopes. Uh, They, (laughs) they see that so much. So they were particularly into rap of some sorts, and you talk about Mustaf and Talib Kweli and some other folks, as opposed to someone like Snoop Dogg, who maybe pushed a lot of the boundaries. Talk about how they were able to connect with rap and make it so it was halal or at least didn't go over into that haram region.
3: So there were a couple of ways they did that. And one of the chapters in the book is basically all about this. I mean, I really centered the book around the sort of conflicts or not conflicts, but tensions they were dealing with. And one of the major ones was about music. And they really did want to connect with each other and feel cool and and be able to enjoy music, but also not sort of push the boundaries too far in terms of of their religion, so one thing they would do is kind of adapt hip hop songs and replace the words with words that were more appropriate for uh, sort of halal listening. So they would kind of take a song that might have a very sexual or very you know drug or alcohol related theme and kind of change the words and sort of make a new version that they could sing to each other.
2: You mentioned, for example, Snoop Dogg's changing sexual seduction to spiritual connection. That's quite a transmogrification you're doing there.
3: (laughs) It is, it is. You know, one thing I realized, too, is that just that act of sort of playing with words in that way together was, I think, part of almost the point of that, is sort of showing each other, just as many close friends who sort of joking around, and that sort of fun space that's created with joking also, I think, takes some of the pressure off the sense of kind of tension, or we have to figure this out the right way, is that there was enough room there for them to kind of play with this so that it became something playful and not necessarily stressful.
2: As I recall, when I went to CYO, when I was hanging around with the Catholic youth group when I was growing up, I guess I was on better behavior than I would have been in my daily life. Actually, I was a pretty good kid, so I I probably didn't do nearly uh, one-tenth of what a lot of people did. But I do know people in our youth group who would never use a swear word, who outside of the youth group, we had this thing where kids who had gone through first through eighth grade in the Catholic school came to the high school and they were had the filthiest mouths. I think they had saved a lot of it up for <laughs> all those years. Did you have a sense that these kids, that their inner life within the mosque and their home life, their school life, that they were of a single cloth?
3: I did i mean it's fun. it's really a really good question, I think there are definitely kids, and i've you know there were some kids like this at the mosque, not necessarily in the group I looked at, and there are definitely kids written about a lot in other books and and movies and things about evangelical kids who do kind of have that compartmentalization and that kind of two separate selves really and immigrant some immigrant youth have a similar dynamic, but I think what was interesting about these guys is that because The mosque and their family and the leadership of the mosque sort of made room for them to be a little more rough around the edges. I think it did, it did sort of flow more smoothly into the rest of their lives. And I think that actually helped them feel like they could, in fact, be both Muslim and American teenagers, which I I think the book really is sort of a positive story that they didn't feel this sense of conflict. I think there are other kids who really do feel more conflicted, but the conflict isn't about something inherently in Islam being in contradiction with American culture. It's something about how these things are set up and sort of who's telling you what in your immediate environment. But I think for some reason, I stumbled on a place where the balance seemed to be working pretty well.
2: I was very interested as you shared the stories of these boys, the legends. And again, folks, we're talking with John O'Brien, who is author of Keeping It Halal, The Everyday Lives of Muslim American Teenage Boys. When you're giving the examples, John, I have the sense of the fine line that they have to walk to be authentically Muslim and to be an accepted teenager, and I kind of wonder how it was for German second-generation kids in the U.S. during World War II, where right away they're suspect, or Japanese on the West Coast, right? A lot of them got put in the camps because, you know, you're Japanese and you're afraid that you're going to be sympathetic to the bad guys, which uh, these days, for a small part of the population, but very influential, is they're worried about Islamic terrorists or some such. So, to some degree, the stories you share point out how these kids walk the line so that even though they wouldn't deny that they're Muslim, they made it more or less obvious that they kind of were Islamish instead of just Islamic. Could you talk about some of the examples of how they walk that line?
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was something that came out a lot when I did talk to them about being in school and what that was like and and heard them talk after coming home from school about things that had happened. And I think it it was a real balancing act of trying to blend in, which is something, again, many teenagers want to do but the stakes were a little bit higher. In part, because of the atmosphere that you're describing, it's very hard to know how people will respond to people who say they're Muslim. And this was true even before the election of Donald Trump, which really has made, I think, the climate in some ways even worse. So it's not necessarily that you know someone's going to harass you or call you a name if they find out you're Muslim, but it's just that you're not sure and you know that it could happen. And so to sort of hedge their bets on that, they would often kind of have, have this identity that I call low-key Islam, where they would sort of, they were available to talk about Islam. They would not try to hide it, but they definitely wouldn't sort of lead with that or volunteer it the first thing when they would meet somebody or when they were trying to get in with a group of friends at school. They might let it kind of come out later on. And I think that has to do with the fact that, as you said, it's sort of a stigmatized identity right now.
2: One of the things I loved was all the examples you gave of the kids portraying the extreme Muslim and, you know, of course, portraying themselves as not that. Could you talk a little bit about how that was used?
3: So this is something that I noticed. And again, these are the kind of things that with this method of ethnography, by spending enough time with people, you can sort of notice these little patterns that they may not really even notice that they do so often. And so for these kids, it was this kind of putting on this heavy, generically Arab Muslim accent and telling each other to stop doing something and acting sort of overly strict. For example, you know, if somebody would be playing music, they'd say, there's no music in the mosque, brother, you know. And knowing that they didn't really want that person to, you know, get in trouble, but they also, it was also interestingly used as a way that would actually get people to stop behaving inappropriately. So it was kind of a way to help your friends modify their behavior but at the same time, do it in a way that wasn't sort of exerting authority over them, but instead trying to sort of share a joke with them. And the joke is, we're making fun of, you know, adults, grown ups. Now, of course, no one in the mosque, including the parents or the leaders, actually sounded like that. <laughs> so this is a very extreme kind of caricature. But in doing that caricature, they're kind of bonding with one another over making fun of that. And also, as you say, saying to each other, well, we're not that strict. We're just sort of... A little bit, I guess.
2: And there certainly were those kind of questions coming up around relationships, around dating. You refer to two different practices, one keeping it halal and the other one dating while Muslim. Talk about the difference between those two and similarities, how they probably morphed from one to the other. That's the sense I got.
3: Yeah, no, they did. I mean, there's no kind of clear solution to this problem of how to date as a Muslim teenager right now. I think other communities, including evangelical communities in some places, have kind of developed more formal programs. There's books about this. There's workshops at churches of how do you sort of date in an appropriate way. But for Muslims, because it's at least for immigrant Muslims, it's relatively new religion in the US. And because dating is such a highly sensitive issue in in terms of the religion, there's really no kind of guidance of how to do this. So you sort of have to make it up. And so I sort of, by hanging out with these kids over time, and as they sort of aged into the time in their life where they would be dating, you know, most of their friends in at high school were dating and talking about romantic relationships. And of course, they're exposed to media and other people and they're human beings. So they, they have these kind of urges and impulses. I saw these sort of two different ways they would handle the dilemma. One way, which was a little bit more sort of religiously sincere, is what they actually called keeping it halal, which means sort of having a, a relationship with someone, but saying in the outset that, you know, we're not going to kiss, we're not going to do anything like that. We're just going to, you know, keep it halal and spend time together and be appropriate and eventually get married and all this kind of stuff. And that was very hard to do because it really put a lot of pressure on the young people. And there's a lot of research about this as well with evangelical youth who who have the same goals. It's very hard to, to succeed at that kind of thing, I think, because of the pressure from other people, from what your friends are doing, and again, from your own kind of hormonal urges, And then the other way was a little more doable for the kids. And that was what I call dating while Muslim, which is you're kind of blurring the lines a little bit. You might not be following the rules to the letter, but you still are doing things that make it feel appropriate. People were still meeting the parents of the people that they wanted to date. They were still had a certain sense of propriety. They would still talk about religion with their partner. Being Muslim was still part of the, the deal, but it didn't feel so heavy and it didn't feel so stressful. And those kind of relationships seem to to work out more in the long term. But in general, there really is no really easy answer to this, because even, even the more appropriate relationship would still be hidden from parents. So this is a really tricky one.
2: <laughs> I think relationships are always fraught with these kind of tensions. Is it True that it is very significantly different in the U.S. than it would have been, you know, in Egypt or Southeast Asia and Pakistan or wherever, where these folks had come from, there where their parents had come from. Is it clear that for teenagers there, the tensions would be significantly different, the pressures?
3: I think in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. I think one difference is that there would be more of kind of a set path of how it should happen. So, for example, here in the UAE where I live, there's more of sort of a set way that even sort of culturally people would introduce people to, you know, someone and they would be expected to meet and maybe they would like each other and and get married. But I do think it's more similar than I realized even at the time of writing the book, because I do think these you know ideas of dating and romantic love and and young love are are obviously sort of worldwide ideas and are all over the place. and so it's funny how many times I've actually taught about my book in my class, which is very international students, but does include a lot of young people from this country who are Emiratis from the UAE who, who think it is quite similar. So I do think it's actually more similar than I realized at the time for young Muslims, even in different countries, to try to figure out balancing the kind of expectations of young romantic love with these cultural and religious traditions of sort of premarital uh, appropriateness.
2: In keeping it halal, most of it is involved with the three years or so that you were working as a youth leader with these Muslim American teenage boys. Toward the end, there's a couple chapters where you do a visitation with them after three and five years later, so a total of five years from when you had been intensively working with them. And their attitudes clearly have loosened. Of course, they've gotten older. I think also, I mean, your wife the woman you married, she was already Muslim, and you had to date her. Did you have to give up your previous ideas about that? Because I'm thinking these pressures are not only for teenagers, they affect adults too. So how does it continue beyond the teenage experience?
3: That's a great question. I think it depends on a lot of times where the people are. So sort of how close you are to your family, how close you are to a community that kind of keeps these expectations around you and also that you want to kind of stay in line with. But I do think for most people, as I saw with the young people that I spent time with, as I saw with people that I know personally, and as I, when I read about and hear about evangelical college students, it's very similar. It is a time when people tend to kind of push these, just like with anyone, actually, it's a time to sort of push boundaries, try different things, you know, break the rules a little bit, get further away from your family a little bit. So yeah, I think it it did definitely loosen up by that time. And it was Hard to predict, as I write in the book, kind of where that's going to end up. You know, some people, that college period is a a very common time when people fall away from their religious practice, maybe for good, but many people actually end up coming back to it. So I think it's just a matter of kind of how that trajectory plays out. It's really hard to know, except for sort of following up with these guys even further down the line. But I have a sense that, given how they were raised and what they experienced, that Being Muslim will be some part of their life, whether it's a cultural identity or a religious identity. But, you know, it's impossible to really predict at this point.
2: I was wondering what countries exist in the world which are primarily Muslim. I've spent a lot of time, for instance, traveling in France because I'm fluent in French, and most of the people I met there would say that they are a non-practicing Catholic, a catholique non-practiquant. It's like that is the number one religion in that country. They still <laughs> somehow identify as Catholic. There's all these yeah. churches spread everywhere, but it doesn't occupy their daily lives particularly. Is that a movement? Are there countries in the Islamic world who've made that kind of transition or direction? I mean, the U.S. is doing it now with the none of the above religious identities growing very quickly, which is totally ahistorical in this country.
3: Yeah, I know it's a great question. And there are places where that's happening, and there's definitely all kinds of, of Muslims who were raised Muslim and then don't necessarily practice or even believe in God. So there's a great variation. I don't know that there's any countries in particular that are kind of doing that overtly, but I know that there's groups of Muslims in many different places who some would call themselves Muslim, but they don't do any of the kind of practices at all, but they still identify as Muslim and some who don't even identify as Muslim. So I think you really do see that range a lot when you get to know people and sort of see the diversity within, within Muslims.
2: There's one thing I meant to mention earlier, John, and that was the reference that you made. I I think you referred to the symbolic affinity of romantic love and Islamic devotion. I think that's a, a chapter. And... I think these young people are trying to find concordance between their faith and the strong feelings that they're having for this person, uh, this romantic. Growing up Catholic, of course, you know, nuns were supposed to be brides of Christ. And there's the—I don't know how many people even have read the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs. It's got all of this language, which is maybe symbolic religious devotion. And yet what you're saying is that the young people— in order to find the concordance that they somehow tried to see the two is the same. Like, this is my religious devotion. Maybe I'm doing a bad job of explaining this. Why don't you say it? You wrote the book, after all.
3: <laughs> no, no, I think I think you're right. And I think there, there are many other places where it shows up that this kind of overlap between what it feels like to feel in love with a person and what it feels like to feel religiously devoted to God or to your practice or to your worship, it it can feel similar. And so I think just it more came from the inside out. I think having those feelings at the same time and trying to be very sincere with it, and that's the kind of thing that has been found multiple times in my work and in other people's work about young religious people of other religions, that The ones who are the most sincere about their faith, they want it to work out, they want to be a good Muslim or Christian, are often the ones that are very much trying this kind of appropriate way of having a relationship, and so they kind of feel this overlap, which can make you feel like, you know, maybe this is possible to do these things together, but as I said, unfortunately, it often is very hard to pull off in the day-to-day.
2: As I said, I grew up Catholic. My mother died when I was nine, so my dad remarried. The woman he married back in 1964 She was Lutheran, and so in order to be married in a Catholic church, she had to convert, and she went through the lessons, and then she didn't really end up converting. So we had a mixed marriage, a Lutheran-Catholic household. (laughs) And in the 1960s, that was still a real tension in our society, and I think Jews experience it in this country significantly. You try and live a good Jewish life with Jewish holidays and Jewish practices, Jewish dietary rules. So I, I'm just aware that that can be really difficult to be paired with someone who doesn't observe the same practices. For the Muslim teenagers you're talking about, I think all of them that you referred to when they first started dating were dating Muslim girls. How imperative is that within the religion? And maybe it just gets more flexible as you get older. I, I don't know. I just have this sense that that's one of the big questions that they had to face. I mean, you had to face it. You were, you were a maybe Zen by the time that that came along and you started dating a Muslim woman.
3: It's very true. And I think, you know, as with many things, different people have different takes on it. But for them, in fact, earlier in their lives, which I think I didn't talk about in the book, some of their earliest kind of, you know, whatever having a girlfriend means when you're in, you know, fifth grade or something, were actually not with Muslim young women. But they sort of ended up as they got older, kind of all then dating Muslim young women. Uh, And I think that was a strong expectation uh, of their families, of their community, that this was something that was expected of you to yeah, have a Muslim family, and if the person wasn't Muslim, that they would convert to Islam. So I think many people feel very strongly about that. Another thing that would happen sometimes is people would really expect you to marry someone of even your same ethnic group so not only muslim but also of your ethnicity same ethnicity even down to the you know coming from the same village you know from where your family came from uh, originally so there were many sort of arguments between older young people and their parents when they did want to maybe marry someone who was muslim but from a different country even that would sometimes be a tension. so yeah i think there is a lot of emphasis on marrying someone who's muslim for sure
2: Let's talk about another area. It's Chapter 5 in your book, Keeping It Halal, The Everyday Lives of Muslim American Teenage Boys by John O'Brien. You talk about being a Muslim in public and how you juggle the identity and how you have to mitigate the dangers of having too strong of an identity in again, Islamophobic country, or at least a country with Islamophobic individuals in it. I found myself reading what you said the people at the mosque were asking the kids to do and saying, well, that makes sense. Yeah, I can see why they choose that. But the kids reacting against it.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a very sort of loaded issue because, well, one thing I should say from the outset is that one difference with these kids than some other Muslim young people, and particularly some Muslim young women, is that these guys weren't visibly Muslim in the sense that if you saw them on the street, you would probably say, oh, these are African-American kids. Uh, often the, the kids from the Arabian country would be seen as Latino because of, of their skin tone, and often people would try to speak Spanish to them. But anyway, they weren't necessarily visibly Muslim on sight, whereas with a young woman wearing a headscarf – Obviously, that's more something that you would locate as Muslim right away. But anyway, so they would talk about this a lot at the mosque. What do you do when someone calls you a terrorist? What do you do if someone harasses you at school? Which definitely happened fairly often, um, not all the time. And there were different answers floating around at the mosque. From the adults, it was more of you should remain calm, try to explain your religion to other people, try to say how much – Islam is a religion of peace and we're not violent. And I think the kids would do that on occasion. But I think they also just got sort of tired of this sort of sense of responsibility of having to do that. And I think they also saw that that often didn't, unfortunately, within their public school context, get people to stop bothering them. So I think there was something about being able to stand up for yourself and, you know, say something rude back to this person or even get into a physical fight about this that, unfortunately, was sometimes more effective from their point of view than taking a more sort of passive approach. And this was really probably the most I guess, the most dramatic tension between the kids and the adults. Otherwise, I think there was a great sense of of family and community in the mosque. But this was one issue where they really did strongly differ in the best approach.
2: I was wondering if, since you converted to Islam... Did you get harassed? I, I mean, you, you've kept your name, John O'Brien. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, when they convert, they'll change their name. Dawood Warnsby, who I interviewed for Song of the Soul, he was a David growing up. When you take a name, a Muhammad or one of the names that's typically identified with Islamic practice, maybe that makes it easier for people to target you. Did you get harassed?
3: I didn't get harassed. I think it was helpful that my family was quite open-minded, Yeah, just sort of open to this. But I definitely did find the experience of kind of hiding it, So, which is obviously easier for me because, as you said, both my name and how I look, no one is really going to assume that I'm a Muslim when they see me. So I definitely could relate to the young people in that tendency to sometimes just not want to deal with it because you don't know how people are going to react. So I didn't often get harassed. I mean, sometimes I would people would say very ignorant things about Islam or challenge me about ideas about the Middle East or about Muslims in general. But I think a lot of the harassment is more about people in situations where they don't have much control over people seeing them as Muslim. And also they don't have much control over kind of who they're around. So if you're at a big public school and some people there just want to bother you, You're sort of more of a target if you're in a certain part of the country. I mean, I think for these kids also, they were in a part of the country that's fairly liberal. And so they didn't have to worry about it too much. And that was also true of me. I think for me, actually, what I tell people is that for my group of friends who were quite accepting of, of me converting, it was actually more becoming more overtly religious that was surprising to them <laughs> than even being Muslim. So I think that was almost more and remains more the sort of differentiating issue between me and some of my you know, college friends who are more secular people
2: that's a big thing in the US and a lot of our listeners here for spirit in action they're not necessarily religious and they are probably very interested in making the world a better place and i'm wondering if now that you've done this sociological research and you know we've looked into the tensions and the coping strategies if you have any recommendations for the future, I mean, sociology as just analysis is one thing, but I I also hope that there would be something for the future that we can make this country a little bit better, that we can ease the transition better. Have you, you developed any ideas in that way, or have you only just done the analysis end?
3: No, I've definitely thought a lot about that and in fact I've talked to different groups about some ideas of, you know, of what can be done. I mean, there's different things at different levels. I think one thing is just people learning more about Islam as a religion and one of the challenges actually is just a demographic challenge, which is that there's only about 1% of the American population that's Muslim. And so to get to know a Muslim person is actually very difficult for most people in the U.S. And so if you don't know someone who's Muslim, it can be very hard to kind of break down those stereotypes. I mean, as we all know, or should know, I think, when you meet someone who's different than you, and you actually know them on a day-to-day level, it's very hard to maintain the kind of black-and-white stereotype that we'd often hear about certain groups in the media. But I think getting to know people one-on-one is a surefire way to break through that. And I think the next best thing is just trying to find ways to understand more about Muslims, about Islam. We don't learn about it in school. We don't learn about it through the media that much, except for certain parts of the world and certain conflicts. And so I think it's – unfortunately, we have to do a little bit of work to learn more about it ourselves is one thing I'd recommend. I also think having spaces like – I mean it's going to sound counterintuitive because there's you know so many movements to sort of prevent the construction of mosques in certain parts of the country – Uh, I think people have this fear, you know, they don't understand their religion. So it seems like something that is scary to them. And in fact, the mosque that I did my project at was very intent on welcoming people in, particularly after 9-11. They would constantly have the kind of open mosque days where they would have people from different religions come and and visit and see what it's like and talk to people. But, you know, that isn't always going to happen. But I think for the Muslims themselves, I think it's actually a good thing to have mosques and to have kind of community centers like this, Where, you know, for generations of other kinds of immigrants and other kind of religious immigrants to the U.S., they had these kind of spaces to have these conversations, to work out these things together and figure out how to manage these different parts of themselves. And so I think that uh, just having these kind of spaces is another important thing.
2: Yes. And folks, we've been speaking with John O'Brien, who is author of Keeping It Halal. They have everyday lives of Muslim American teenage boys. He's an assistant professor of sociology at New York University in Abu Dhabi. That's where he's been speaking to us from. His book just came out recently. I recommend that you open your mind, your hearts to some more young folks And I want to commend you, John, not only for writing the book to give us this view that it will open hearts and minds, but for working with youth. It's so important, and not everyone can do it. And it seems to me that you have a gift. They certainly open to you in a way that tells me you are a trustworthy adult, and that makes all the difference, helping our young people grow up to be happy, peaceful, loving participants in our world. I want to thank you for doing that, for writing Keeping It Halal, and for joining us for Spirit in Action.
3: Well, thank you very much. I had a great time.
2: And folks, you can find a link on nordenspiritradio.org to find a copy of the book. Again, the name is Keeping It Halal. I want to thank Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's
1: program, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson.
0: With every voice